0: Hey what's up everyone, this is Chris Pugh here, your host slash your boy from The Noise Podcast. Just wanted to open this episode myself because during the intro, I mentioned that at the end of the episode there's going to be an interview with Walter Delgado from Rotting Out and as you will hear in the episode, about an error or so into the podcast I realised that there's not going to be enough time to include it so I decided to cut it from this episode and that interview is going to be on a sole episode on its own next week, the reason why I made that decision is because the options I had were to be either to cut the Walter Delgado interview down so that it was like 25 minutes long, or cut mine and Sam's chat down so that it was only 25 minutes long. Uh, Neither of those really are viable options, mainly because the interview with Walter Delgado ...is so, so fascinating and I want everyone to be able to hear it in its entirety... ...because I think you deserve to hear it. Um, and as I mentioned on the podcast, I barely speak. It's just Walter telling me about his life. It's really fascinating and upsetting to hear sometimes stories of his life. And I just wanted to give some clarity on that before the actual show starts. So you will hear me say during the intro, etc... ...that there's an interview coming at the end of the episode, a Chris Meat special... There won't be this week. I'm going to release that specially on its own next week. That's going to be with Rotten Out's vocalist Walter Delgado. However, there's still plenty on the show for you to get your teeth into. Full chat on Sam's 17th greatest metal album of all time, and then album reviews on The Used and Enter Shikari. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 34 of the Noise Podcast, brought to you by noise.co.uk. I am your host, slash your boy, Chris Pugh, and as ever, I am joined by my very good friend and Mr. Cynical himself, Samuel Lewis. Mate, how are you?
1: I can't complain at all, mate, all things considered. How about yourself?
0: Mate, me neither, man. Things are, well, as you mentioned, all all things considered in this difficult time. I mentioned to you that I've been, like, keeping busy in my time off. I mean, I had my first day at work back today, but mm. other than that, I've been I've been keeping busy, like I've been watching load of films with my mom, Plus, I'm a, like a really avid gamer and listening to music and stuff. I watched mm. a film the other day called Yesterday. Are you oh, fami- yes. Are you familiar with it?
1: Is it the one about the the guy who like he he he, he time travels or something? And he goes back in time to when the Beatles haven't been discovered. Is it that one?
0: It, the, basically, the present is pretty much that. What happens is there's like a worldwide blackout, but he's unconscious during it. So. Somehow, the Beatles have been completely erased from time and memory. But he was unconscious during it, because he got knocked out. And he's the only person that can remember the Beatles. And, like, all vinyls, CDs, they've all just completely disappeared. So it's like the Beatles never existed. And he's, like, a struggling musician. So he's just fucking around after this blackout with his friends... And he starts playing Yesterday and his friends are like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Who? Wh- when did you write that? And he's like, what do you mean? When did I write that? I didn't write that It's the Beatles. And they're like, who? Um, and honestly, mate, even though Ed Sheeran's in the film, <laughs> it's still <laughs> it's still really the, the film is Me me on watch a lot of like really serious films. Like, we watched Hacksaw Ridge, which is, like, a war film. We watched mm-hmm. uh, Warrior with Tom Hardy. We watched The Godfather, mm-hmm. which we spoke about on the last episode, I believe. So it was nice to just watch, like, a feel-good movie, which is a bit silly and a bit rough around the edges. But, mate, a really good way to to pass 90 minutes. It's like this alternate universe where the Beatles never existed. So he's wrote all these Beatles songs. And, obviously, he... I'm not going to tell you how the film ends, but he reaches, as you can imagine absurd fame and all the problems that you would imagine come with that really really cool man if you do get a chance to check it out uh, were you a fan of the beatles
1: i respect them i I like them and i think there's like a decade of music that's pretty peerless for that period of time
0: yeah i mean i I asked you then were you a fan of the beatles i I think you'd have to be pretty hard stung to find someone who's would say i don't like the beatles Cause you, you do, yeah. don't you? You like at least one or two Beatles songs. Come on, I think,
1: everyone. I think the, the Beatles hit the jackpot in terms of songwriting, in terms of the sense that they just they na- they nailed the popular, they nailed the pop song. Uh, it, the pop pop. You can't hate pop music, but no. people like resent it. But there's some songs that are just transcendent. the The The, the Beatles run from like sixty three four-ish when they were doing like revolver and stuff like that and then Sgt. Peppers and then all the way to like Let It Be before they broke up. That near decade run is like as gold standard as a yeah. as a pop band is is gonna is gonna get. Uh, when you look back as well, it's quite extraordinary that they stopped playing live shows in like nineteen sixty five and crazy. it didn't really affect their revenue in the slightest or their fame like at all they were like appearing in films and all this sort of thing and it, it's just it's quite astonishing but yeah I, I wouldn't like kick back and be like you know let's rock a little bit of yellow submarine while i'm reading the paper or something like that but it, it's not it's not that sort of band for me but they like loads of other bands like well like if only a few actually only a few really 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 great bands have just transcended culture haven't they like them and and, and you maybe could throw in sort of Zeppelin and 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 sort of like Michael Jackson and those sort of bands and, and artists that have just properly gone above and beyond what we would what we put any other musical group in. I think. Um, so yeah, I, you can't say that you're not a fan of the Beatles because I think they've just laid the blueprint for everything that we l- listen to later on. I
0: Think what you can say you're not a fan of is puddle of mud, Sam. Huh? Yeah, I
1: think
0: I think. You- <laughs> I think you can say that. I'm pretty sure you know where I'm going here. Um, yeah! <laughs> so, like, literally, about 35 minutes after I saw that cover, you sent me the WhatsApp and you were like, mate, have you seen this? <laughs> um, for for those who aren't aware, Puddle of Mud did a cover of about a girl by Nirvana mm. for, Sirius, for Sirius, Sirius XM. FM, sorry. And, oh my it is oh sam this is awful isn't it this yeah, is it's really it's, bad
1: it, it, it isn't it isn't great but for the first 30 seconds i was I, mean, I was listening to it thinking this doesn't sound too different to what about a girl sounds like in the first place <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that being that being said um yeah this is this is a car crash man like did you have you watched the video like where they're laughing
0: yeah you can they like, like the members smiling <laughs> in, in like, the
1: background on guitars on television and it's like he's paying you to be there, and they can't—they can't keep a straight face. It's extraordinarily bad. This might be, this might be one of the worst things that the puddle of mud lead singer's ever done. And that is saying something.
0: Yeah, that he is saying the something. Last, the last—the
1: last decade of, of 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 his life has just been a, a, a disaster. Man. But the, this is just one of the worst things I've ever seen.
0: Had he not have tried to match Kurt Cobain's pitch? At every level, this might have been completely passable, but for some reason, I don't know. I don't know why he does this. He tries to match like f- vocal frame for vocal frame exactly yeah. what yeah. Kurt Cobain did, and I can understand giving it a go. But after the first couple of verses, he should have really picked up on the fact that this isn't going well, and I'm just going to play it my own tone. It, yeah. it's, it's really bad. It is, it is really awful. The thing is, though,
1: this wasn't. This was surely rehearsed. Why did no one tap him on the shoulder and be like, Dude, "Can we like put a capo on this or like put it in a different key or stop entirely? Yeah, maybe just do a different cover <laughs> out of anything just, else." No, like, like my god, this doesn't work. And the thing is. I, I don't know what he sounds like now when he actually sings, like the things could have changed. But put he's got a decent voice.
0: Yeah, well something can sing, man.
1: He can sing. Um so why not just do a do a song that you can you can sing, man? Like just do blurry and she hates me and leave. Like does this, 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 this we don't need this. We don't need this. We just <laughs> yeah. don't, just,
0: it's if you haven't fact. figured it out by now, this is an alternative music podcast. It comes to you fortnightly through the very good people at that we UK, available on YouTube, Apple Music and Spotify. On episode 33, me and Sam did a review on the new Malevolence EP, The Other Side, which is out on Friday. And If you don't listen to it, me and Sam might fight you. Uh, we reviewed the new Black Dahlia murder album, Verminous, and we had a chat on Hybrid Theory, which was number 18 in your That's greatest right, yeah. metal album list of all time, Sam.
1: That's right,
0: yeah. Absolutely. I also did my Chris Meats interview with Dean Harris, who is a fantastic alternative music photographer and also a wedding photographer as well. Check him out at Uh This week, we're going to continue on talking about the greatest metal albums of all time. We've got album reviews on the used new album, Heartwork, and Enter Shikari's new record, Nothing Is True and Everything Is Possible. And this week, my Chris Meats interview was with Walter Delgado, who is the vocalist from uh, punk band Rotting Out. I just want to actually. Before we go into the episode, massively thank Walter for that this absolutely amazing chat. If you stick around for the end of the episode, you're going to hear. Walter's had a fascinating and very sometimes hard to listen to life very difficult circumstances that he grew up in and that he's just been around in general and he was like massively open with everything and he really didn't need to be went into detail about his time in prison and what he learned and difficulties with his childhood how that influenced rotting out musically all this amazing stuff Um, so please do stick around to the end episode for that I I barely talk for the entire I speak for about an hour. We speak for about an hour. I barely talk. It's just him going into full detail with me, and it was really great. So if you get a chance, stick around for the end of the episode and check that out. On noise.co.uk at the moment, we've got on and off the record with Sugar Horse, finding out who the inspiration was behind their new EP, Drugs. Sam... Wrote his review on Malevolence's EP, and that's up there as well. And we've actually got a written review on the new Rotting Out album, Ronin, which is a really great punk album as well, if uh, you've got any punk fans out there. Sam, should we get into the episode?
1: Please, please, please.
0: Let us begin. Uh, Sam, the 17th greatest metal album of all time?
1: Is And Justice For All by Metallica.
0: What I think is... just just start this off. What I think is so great about this album is that I imagine we're going to speak about Metallica at least another three times during this list. Um, yes,
1: that would be a correct assumption.
0: And i still got loads I want to talk to you about this album. And this is like <laughs> fourth. <laughs> There's another <laughs> three albums to come after this.
1: Yes, and, indeed.
0: And that kind of just puts a very small point on what a tremendous record that this is. But we're, we're going to go into full detail here. Yes. Do you remember, because you, you got into Metallica much, much earlier than me. Mm. You, was your your starting point what I'd, I'd imagine was the Black Album?
1: Yeah, I heard the Black Album on radio, yeah. So I think it was Sad But True on Kerrang!
0: But even when you first encountered Unjustice For All, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming, similar to me, you still knew it was something special, didn't you? Even though you got in at the Black Album and and Justice For All isn't an album that you can fully appreciate in one listen. However, even the first time I heard this through, I still understood why this was such a fine point for metal in the 80s. Yeah,
1: I completely agree. Um, I I discovered this um, when I bought the Metallica live album, the live binge and purge. And the first time I heard anything off Unjustice for All was when I watched the Seattle show for the first time when I was, like, 14. Um, and it, it started the opening with Blackened. And I was like, holy shit, I need to get the album that this is from. And then I went back and bought the album. And it's... I think it's my second favourite Metallica album. I, think, I think I've,
0: I've
1: I think I've settled on that after listening to it again and rereading over it. Because obviously there's there's lots of extenuating circumstances around I'm just for here that we're we're gonna get to a little bit later on but from a musical standpoint it has two or three of Metallica's finest songs um and really most impactful songs like people talk about like the black album how it kicked open the door and and made them into massive mega stars it and it did it did that can't be denied but that wouldn't have happened if there weren't halfway to that point with injustice for all with with the stuff that they were doing um people forget that like the one off this which is a one of the greatest metal songs ever written be a top three metallica song probably by like not if you not if i asked you your favorite metallica song if you were like the greatest metallica songs one would be top five um without a shadow of a doubt and it, it got them nominated for a grammy when they were like a thrash metal album, a thrash metal band, which they then performed in 1988 in front of, there's a really great clip. If you go on YouTube and you can watch the performing one in front of like Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston and stuff like that in the Grammys, um, crowd in, in the late eighties. And they're, 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 sort of nodding along and then like about four minutes in, it just completely changes. And the, the whole stage goes dark and there's some sort of terrified faces in the audience and stuff. Um, but this was just an incredibly impactful album. When you look at the, um, the the overall success of Metallica, and then it led to that Damage Justice tour nineteen ninety eight that really, really set Metallica up. So I'm, I'm, I'm with you. This is one of one of the key points in Metallica's musical history. It can't be denied. It's one of their four best albums. One of the the, the most impactful albums of Metallica's career.
0: Fascinating when you consider that during the interview with uh, David Frick from Rolling Stone, which you can watch on YouTube. It's like an hour and a half. And he sits with the band and speaks about the album in, in tremendous detail. Re- really, really great listen. But during that, he mentions to the band about the political aspect of the album, you know, on the artwork, which is, it's my favourite Metallica artwork for, yeah. for an album. Lady yeah. Justice is tied up and she's battered. And uh, James and Lars both say... Uh we were kind of shitting ourselves that all of the people would then think we're gonna become a political band and they'd expect us to then write about politics going forward and this was more about just capturing where we were at the time. And it's it's interesting to hear Metallica talk about any kind of anxieties or fears, isn't he? Because mm. when we consider Metallica now, they're this all encompassing metal monster that you, that just you think are just impervious to problems. But obviously in the late eighties they were metal superstars, but they weren't worldwide superstars. Absolutely so not, it, no. it is interesting to consider that, you know, this album did bring around eventual, like legitimate anxieties for them. Like they had to legitimately make the call. Should we do a video for one or not? People might mm-hmm. hate us for it. And uh, James also says in that interview that a, a fan spat at him and was like, you sold out. You, you've done a video. You said you never would. And James was like, Motherfucker, yeah, we did do a video. It, like, it finished number one. It opened up more eyes to people that then would possibly find us on MTV and then look for the likes of Slayer, Megadeth, etc. Which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into later on. But it is interesting to think that they'd gone down this course that they were worried people would then expect them to take forward. And they couldn't even make that promise to themselves
1: yeah you're absolutely right there was a lot of decisions here that they made that they it started the split between different eras of metallica obviously this is the first um album post cliff burton's death of which there were massive ramifications for later on It was the first um album with a video that you mentioned um with one though fair enough like fans might have been remotely upset but any any person that sits down and watches that one video does not walk away from that thinking that metallica have gone down the mtv cliche um, here not. because the the type of the, the way that the video was put together and the the the, the selection of the film johnny got its gun where all the clips are taken from um and how harrowing that is it looked yeah. it's, i remember the first time i watched that it's genuinely uncomfortable it to watch when it went when the when the breakdown kicks in near the end and he's screaming and he's any 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 sort of rotating and then it flits between the band looking real somber and it's all black and white and stuff and then when he dies at the end and it kicks to that sort of chanting at the end it's deliberately uncomfortable and that was metallica's i think that was their internal compromise which like all right if we have to do this we're going to do it on our terms and that was really colored the whole album all right if we're going to do this we're going to do it our way if we're going to release a video it's going to be like this if we're going to appear at the Grammys, it's going to be like this if we're gonna um play these type of songs and go down this like you said political aspect because it was the first time that metallica had gone away from just like generic people that die people are mental peace some monsters like sort of like thematic stuff in their lyrics like in 1986 james hetfield was writing about the church and that was about as far out as they got and they were still writing about like sea monsters with a thing that should not be and stuff like that. Um, 88 was really thrash metal was starting to go more political and writing more about social decay. If you look at the, what Slayer were doing on South of Heaven and then in 1991 as well, Slayer themselves started to write about things like murderers and war and things like that. And, and thrash metal in general was trying to get away from Satan Yeah. Um and being tied to the devil because that was that was now going a different direction. There were whole groups of bands who were just writing about the devil and devilish stuff and they were painting their faces. And I think Metallica were one of the many bands who were trying to distance themselves from that and say, Look, we're not that. We're not gonna set fire to a church, we're not going to put studs on our jackets and face paint and all this sort of stuff. But we are we are gonna write heavy music, but we're gonna, you know, make it more realistic. So to that, to the point that you're trying to make, it was it was one of the first, one of the first, and one of the many brave steps that Metallica took to really separate themselves from so many bands, and it and it comes under this incredible set of circumstances that they recorded this album as well.
0: Just musically, is Black and the best ever opening track? I think it just shades out of battery for me.
1: That's a tough one. I think I think you can. I think I think you can you can make an argument for either. I personally would say that Battery is a better opening song, and um, because of the um, the acoustic stuff and and the fact that it's it's part of a better album in Master of Puppets. But as an individual track, I, I prefer Blackened.
0: It's just that rhythm guitar at the start, man.
1: Oh, it's the time signature as well. It's not quite four four. If you listen to it, it's it's a it's a slippery riff as well. Like it's a weird way to explain it, but it's sort of like battery in the sense that, do you know what I mean? Like it's sort of like a snake-like type riff, where it just sort of slides from note to note, yeah. and it does. And you can't quite pin it down. You know that bit where it it breaks into the the slow bit, and then Lars Ulrich's messing about with the rhythms, and it's coming back in at different times, and then it speeds up. It's such a dexterous song, and i read little bits today i did some reading again and fleming remusen was talking about the hours that they put in to get this as tight as it was and man you can't separate james and lars at all on this album they are so tied together this is so tight there's no listen to like you listen to master probably through earphones and you can hear at times especially on battery Little bits where Lars sort of strays away from the rhythm of James's guitar and he's sort of doing his own thing. And, and, and the same on, on other bits like Master of Puppets and Damage Incorporated. It's on the faster songs usually where Lars Ulrich sort of does his own thing. But man, on this album, and on Blackened, it's just airtight. And the, uh, I'm sure me and you've had this conversation before. I think this is obviously Metallica's musical peak in terms of the skill level. Yeah,
0: yeah. The skill uh, level, it, absolutely it, the,
1: the, the difficulty of what it takes to play this, because I have attempted <laughs> to <laughs> learn some of these on guitar over the last few years. And it just, it would ta- it takes months to even just, just watching like, um, I'm Justice for All the Song. It's 10 and a half minutes and it isn't one song, is it? it's like different bits pieced together. And then you listen to like, to Is To Die or Die is Eve. And you, you try and play the drum track to that it's extraordinary the, the musicality here and it probably it, it probably prompted metallica taking the step back that they did the black album because I, I think it got to the point and we'll touch on this a little bit as well it got to the point of metallica where they were they were getting a bit exhausted playing these songs live yeah, yeah. but fan fans were getting a bit bored because and justice rolls a long song it and is, even 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 with even with the the live show and and I think it's it's one of my favorite one of the reasons why it's my favorite era of Metallica is that lady justice when she blows up and falls apart and, and midway through the song and 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 that sort of stuff that's brilliant but if you took that away fans would, would would get a little bit tired of the head banging after a while I think and they need a shift and I think Metallica then obviously decided to to make that massive shift for the black album but in terms of the the musical depth here. If you're a fan of progressive, well thought out, dexterous music, like if you like, if you're a if you're a Machine Ed fan, but you've only heard like the Black Album by Metallica, and you like Opeth, oh, man, you should. If you put on a Justice for All, it would it still blow your mind, I think. Absolutely. Uh, because of the musical difficulty here, like, and you hear them play like even songs like "To Live, Is to Die." um with with the harmony guitars and the changes of tempo and stuff this is such a musically brilliant album i think especially for lars ulrich because lars gets a lot of flack the band obviously took a different direction in the 90s but this is from a musical standpoint this is lars and james's peak as both a rhythm guitarist and a drummer here they don't get any better on this album i don't think
0: oh mate i I think lars drumming on this album is is really tremendous and he does get a lot of flack but i think that sometimes he gets flack just because it's like one of the first things you might find on a reddit board and then it just becomes the cool thing to agree with um listen to his patterns between the choruses and eye of the beholder you cannot you cannot tell me he's not a great drummer I'm sorry, I'm I'm not having it. Even if you only listen to Eye of the beholder, just listen to him on that song. I'm sorry, I'm not having that. He's not a great drummer. Um, there are better drummers. There are loads of better drummers than Lars Ulrich, but uh, uh, on by the same token, I don't think there's a better drummer for Metallica than Lars Ulrich. He is exactly what he needs to be in that band, and also he's a pivotal part of the song. Oh my god, amazing! And also he's a pivotal part of the songwriting as well. Yeah, which, which often gets overlooked. He he's he's a big part of not just like the songwriting, the marketing, yeah, and loads of other outside decisions as well. You mentioned one just about Lady Justice falling down when they're playing the title track, and stage stage show. You know, late eighties. You're talking about like uh, classic heavy metal bands, Metallica moving into like, and I've seen that Seattle uh, DVD. That you were referencing earlier with you. It well, is this best Seattle, life. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 89. Yeah. So, like, you know,
1: it's Amazing. the best live metal show I've ever seen.
0: I mean, I think I would agree. Absolutely phenomenal. But that was where Metallica, who were this, like, thrash metal band, were moving away from, like, r- keeping themselves tied down to, well, we're thrash metal, so all we need to do is just turn up and play. Man, they had, like, a massive, massive stage production, and. ...interested again to hear them refer to, well, we were inspired by Iron Maiden for that. Which is amazing when you hear in Metallica say things like, Iron Maiden inspired yeah. that. Because for in my entire lifetime that I have paid attention to Metal, and specifically Metallica, they don't need... To, they are the inspirers, do you know what I mean, for, for so many. So to listen to them say, yeah, Iron Maiden inspired that, they were doing really big things to their stage show, and we decided to follow suit fascinating to, to just to hear the words that Metallica were inspired by someone else. And the whole, that explosion where Lady Justice falls is, oh, mate, that is a moment. So it's one of those things you'd look back in metal and think, I would have loved to have been there to, to actually say that.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. It, it's, it's, it's one of the, one of my favorite, um, little, little things about Metallica, I guess, is though the, word, the for, for want of a better phrase, just I like, I just enjoy that the most. Um, I enjoy this period of Metallica. I think I think James Hetfield's voice does not sound much better on any other record than it does on, point, on points on this album.
0: On the title track and To Live Is To Die, they are yeah. a bit long in the tooth for me. Mm-hmm. And in fairness... That's understandable. They're fucking yeah, long. Mate, they're long songs. And in fairness, as you picked up on, the band realised that, they picked up that people were looking quite bored in the crowd, and thus becomes the Black Album. So, uh, and justice for all, is like it's really, like, strange meeting of points in time where Metallica were the most progressive they'd ever been in terms of song length, uh, difficulty, and structure. Yeah. And then, because of that, decided to be the least progressive they <laughs> ever were, at, yeah. like, literally within 18 months, which is, which is again, really fascinating element of time when you think about those two worlds meeting
1: i completely agree one of the more self-aware metal bands in the world really metallica um their ability to be able to sit down and look back and say no that was a mistake or we should do it this way or we need to change that moving forward and also from this point from this point onwards especially with the black album just to be able to say well yeah this this was successful two years ago we're not going to do that again um when bands in metallica's world and no disrespect to any of the other bands. Slayer brought out Bulls in 1986 and then spent the next four albums trying to do that again.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, Megadeth brought out Peace Cells and tried to do Peace Cells and then they did Rust in Peace, which was brilliant, and then tried to do Rust in Peace again. Um, Metallica were like, oh, we did Kill 'Em All, that was brilliant. Oh, we did Ride the Lightning, we're going to do something else. We're going to do Master of Public. It's going to get more progressive than that, though, we're do Thrawl, and we're going to do Antrusted Thrall. And they were like, oh, all right, he's taking this a bit too far now. We're now going to be the biggest rock band on the world. And they, they did that as well. Uh, it's astonishing. And then we're like, we're going to shun our entire identity and change everything about who we are and release a double album with a country song on it. Fuck it. Uh, it's it's just astonishing. Yeah, it's
0: crazy.
1: Uh, like, the way they were just like, this worked. Let's not do that again <laughs> and still be successful. It, it, it's, it's extraordinary. There's no other band that do that a year on and um, album on album. There's eras of bands where they'll have two or three albums that you can chunk together and then after a while they, they shift away, Bring Me A Like That, they have the Metalcore era and they've adjusted and Parkway Driver did that and Slayer did that. Metallica it's like every two years, they're like, oh, we're a different band now. Um, So, for them to bring out songs like this and then completely shift that. Um, That being said, obviously, and I, I want to sort of segue into the the the, the obvious stuff about And Justice sure Raw that we haven't yet mentioned, um, is that they look back now on Unjustice for All" and it does has an does have an asterisk. I think it it must be said that Unjustice for All" I've put it at 18 because of the effect that it had, not just on Metallica but on bands. Since you can draw a link between Unjustice Justice for All" and prog metal, um, yeah. I'm not saying they invented it because you know um, you could argue that bands have preceded them like Journey and Sticks and and Rush and Genesis have, have invented progressive rock. But in terms of this direction. That when we where we get to Periphery and Dream Theater and 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 Animals as Leaders and all this sort of stuff that we get later on, you can really draw it back to Metallica giving ten minute songs in nineteen eighty eight when Bon Jovi was the biggest artist on the planet, and that that's that's a real link you can draw. Um, when if you talk to Metallica now, and obviously you mentioned that interview, and I've I've read bits of their books, they look back and they there is a bit of an asterisk over this just because of the mixing. Yeah, uh, um, obviously um because as everybody who listens to this album knows it sounds fucking weird and it took do you remember the first time you listened to it did you try i remember trying to figure it out because i i heard it when i was like 14 15 did you you know when you listen to this did you know going in it had no bass or did yes. you discover that later on
0: i know, i already knew going in that there was a, a massive problem with the mixing because i was so late in the game uh, and by that point, I'd like read up and research Metallica. I didn't actually like fully listen to this album in its entirety until like about six to eight months after I saw them headline leads. Because when wow. I saw them headline leads, I was just listening to classic Metallica songs then, like ones that I knew they'd play. Yeah. And after that point, I was massively into them, and that's when I started like doing the research and the looking up. But it is worth pointing out that on the remastered version, that they, they do that, that is somewhat fixed. It's, yeah, better. Per- it's better.
1: Not perfectly. It's better. Not, it's better. It's better. Um, yeah. So I—I I, could—I would make an argument that maybe with base with a better mixing job this album might be slightly higher in the list for its musical depth and the fact that imagine one the the studio version of one and blackened with bass and a better mixing job would just be genre defining songs and they already they already are i mean um they already are incredible staples especially one staples a metallica set but without that um it does really detract which is really sad it's a really curious set of circumstances that, that led in, that led into that, that going in, um, in terms of, in terms of Jason Newstead's bass being turned down and, and the fact that injustice for all was the album after Cliff Burton died and, and, and that sort of stuff. So do you want to go into all that now? Let's do it. Okay. Okay. So I did some, I did some else. I did some rereads. I went back and read, um, and Justice for All, the truth about Metallica. And it's not just centred on that album. It's it's a whole thing. And if you if you, if you are listening to this, you are a Metallica fan, like Pew, I've recommended this to you a couple of times. If you get a chance, um, give it a read or give it a buy. Uh, uh, it's really, really brilliant. It talks to everybody, all the members of the bands, all the contemporaries throughout the, the course of their history. It's really fantastic. And and uh, when I read to this band, I was reminded of a few things. Number one, Jason Newstead was hired in 1996 a month after Cliff Burton died, about three weeks after his funeral, after, actually. Um, the band then immediately went on tour with Jason Newstead to Japan, then did the Monsters of Rock show in 1987, then started writing and recording Unjustice for All. And then in 1988, when the album was being mixed, which we'll get to in a moment, they went on the Monsters of Rock Tour 88 with Van Halen. So during that period of time, there was no traditional grieving process for sort of Cliff. And that and that sort of stuff. And as a result, they they bullied. It is there's no there's no other way of putting it about it. They bullied Jason Newstead. There's loads of stories where they would like get taxis to shows or hotels and make him ride on his own. Um uh, where they would buy loads of drinks without inviting him and then send it all to his room as a bill. Um wake him up at random points. Just like just stupid, immature shit. Um during this period of time, like Metallica like Lars and and James Hetfield, especially, were just drinking all the time. Like it was, it was Jägermeister and vodka and coke, a lot of it as well. And just all that added together um, meant that there were just 24 hours. And, and as they were mixing, and Justice for All, this was in the midst of their first big Monsters of Rock show as a support behind Van Halen, who at that point were like the biggest American rock band in the world, really. Um, and they were flying Well not flying They were driving From Monsters of Rock shows And their tours To the studio To do mixing During which During which they hired um, A different producer Than Fleming Remusso Now Fleming Remusso Is the guy that did Ride the Light And the Master of Puppets And I'm sure you'll agree Chris did a great job Absolutely um, Really fantastic work And you can hear All the instruments And During this period of time Metallica were like Do you want to do another one He was unavailable So they hired this guy called Mike Klink and they were recording stuff and they just couldn't find the sound. There was no chemistry. They just didn't get it working. So they got rid of Mike Klink and I rang Fleming back and I said, look, can you come in and do this? Now, during this period of time, they were recording parts. James and Lars were driving on their own to the album, to the album recording, looking over recordings of stuff, doing the mixing and talking to the engineers who were in the studio already. Mike Klink was gone and there was no other producer there. Meanwhile, Jason, who was recording bass notes, was just being brought in with an assistant engineer with no producer because there wasn't one yet. Fleming and was about to turn up and just recording stuff in front of guys. James and Lars weren't there. They weren't there at all during the um, Jason Newsley recording the bass notes and then just turned up later with the final mix. So Jason would say he would just sit there with an assistant and use the same gear he'd use on stage nothing different, and just record, and there'd be, like, mistakes, he'd just rattle through it, and they'd be like, okay, that's great, thanks, you can go home now. And then he'd just go home, no feedback, no mixing, no changes, nothing. He thought, this is fucking weird. But, like, Jason didn't, he was in a small band beforehand in Flotsam and Jetsam, he never thought anything of it, he sort of turned up and did it, right? Then, when Fleming Ramusen came, and actually started mixing, the album was pretty much 99% done, and Fleming just added all the bits together, made it sound good, and um, that included Jason Newsted's already recorded bass. Now, Metallica were about to go on tour and they just wanted the album finished and done. All the songs were written, everything else needed to be tightened up. So we went to this final mixing guy and it went to Steve Thompson and Michael Ribeiro, who were two producers. And then James and Lars were in the room as well. And... Ross Halfin, who's who's Metallica's official photographer, he's been following around for 30 years, said that he was in the room when they were mixing the album and Lars was just listening to it and there was one notch of volume for Jason's bass and Lars was just like, that's one notch too much and just turned it off and deliberately mixed him out of the album. Um, There's a great quote as well that Jason talks about here and it's really fucking sad, actually. Um, And I've just got it written down here. So... So they're partying. This is James and Lars. This is Jason who's talking about James and Lars. So they're partying all this stuff with a kind of attitude about the bass. It's not Cliff, yada, yada, yada. And they go into it and tell the dudes, um, get the bass just where you can hear it and then take it down half a decibel. Then turn the frequency up on the guitars and try and make the bass drum fill it out and make it more progressive. And that's exactly what happened. So... Lars and James recording and doing the mixing on their own. Just turned up the guitar and the drums, obviously because it's Lars and James. They want themselves to sound as big as possible. Turned down Jason Newsted half a decibel. They didn't like it. They didn't. They didn't think the, the bass notes were very good. They were poorly recorded. But on top of that, the hellish resentment from never really getting over Cliff. Um, Jason reckons that it wasn't until like five years into him being in the band, just like 1991, that he ever actually felt accepted as a member of Metallica. So they took out a lot of it on him. And especially Lars was an egomaniac, just thought, well, if you just turn the bass down just so you can hear it and then turn the drums up, that'll just make up for the loss of bass because it'll just be really percussive. And they really liked the sound. Um, but essentially, it was a smorgasbord of the fact that there was no actual producer for like a month. Fleming Remusen is oh, the guy that was there, um, would have probably turned the bass up if he would have been in that final room. But when Jason was recording the bass dance, there was no one there. Then when he turned up, when Fleming finally turned up, he got it to a point where it was then sent to another collection of producers who were just being just doing what James and Lars told them. And then on top of that, all this additional resentment um, led to them turning the bass down. And then Jason says later, yeah, I probably should have said something, but the record label, like, when's this going to be out? When are you going on tour? And what was I going to be like? Oh, fuck, we need to sit down and re-record the bass when he was already an unpopular member of the band. It already felt like three of them and one of him. And he just thought, I'll just block it out. And he said, I'll just never listen to the album again. I just pretended it didn't happen. And that's so sad. Like, he's joined Metallica. He was a yeah. massive fan. And it's like, I just, the first album he's ever appear, appears on, like a first full album. It just, it just, is not on it. And he, do, he just had to block it out. And the weird thing is as well, is they're recording an EP the year before, Garage Days. And there's loads of bass on that. <laughs> loads. Like, it's really visible. They didn't do the mixing because it was just a, an EP it's just he's really visible it's just replicating the guitar but it's really sad that no one really took care of him and as a result Metallica didn't do anything about it and then it it leads to one of the more curious mixing decisions that the band have ever made and apparently two or three months later they they, they started to think actually this sounds um this doesn't sound so great Lars Ulrich apparently was embarrassed like 6 months later um and james James just ignores it, Kirkham it says it just sounds weird. it sounds bad um and there's a great Lazar quote about a decade later where he says, sometimes I sit down on justice for all and think we created an entire fucking blueprint for what metal was going to sound like for the next fifteen years, and then other times I sit down and listen to it and laugh and it's yeah. and that really summarizes it does it does uh, uh, like because you can go in it and think, what the fuck were these guys thinking?" at the point of their ego and hubris and all the resentment the hell for Jason Newsted and all that sort of stuff to make this decision that really stymied their own progress. Like obviously that it didn't matter. By three years later they've released the black album, they're on a different vibe. But it, this album could have been we could be having arguments now about whether we you think I'm Justice Raw is better than Master of Bits or Right the Lightning. Um, because of the mixing job. That's how much of a difference that it made. And it's just such a strange situation. Um Metallica then went on to do Monsters of Rock and then did the Grammys and and Angus still, still opened the doors that it was it should have opened for them at the time. I just it's just sad to think that this could have been even better. What isn't already an extraordinary album by an extraordinary group of musicians. Do you know what I mean?
0: Looking back, it is one of those things that aches you a bit, isn't it? What what it could have been, imagine, if they added a proper bass production onto mm. it. But I don't know. Like, even when you consider all that, like, let, let's just call this what it is. This this is most band's crowning moment, <laughs> but it's yeah. But yeah. like, it's Metallica's fourth most because i mean, saying same, same best album. is obviously personal, but it's probably their fourth in their list of classic albums. Or albums that, in, that are of great influence. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But well, this yeah. is most band's great. This is most band's finest ever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And oh, just oh, a final point
0: from me is Doier's Eve the heaviest song they ever wrote because I fucking think it might be. I love that song so much, so ever.
1: Yeah, that's it's the up, thing. It's up there, isn't it. It is up there. Is it heavier than the thing that should not be though? Heavier.
0: Well, it's the, faster. Yeah. I mean, and theoretically, you know, you could say, is it heavier than Sad but True? Because Sad but True is an incredibly heavy song, although in a, yes. in a in a slightly different way. But that's what Metallica can do, isn't it? They make these discussions that that, that you wouldn't have even considered having, <laughs> like you yeah. bringing up, like like you bringing up elements of oh, is the thing that should not be slightly heavier though? Because we're it, eating heavier <laughs> in different ways. Do you know what I mean? That, that's what Metallica do to you, Matt. D- this album. I mean, we could dedicate a whole episode to this album, couldn't we? Um, what's the um, What's the highlight of the album for you? Um, "A Blackened." "Blackened" is probably in my top three Metallica songs. Oh no, no, no! no. Uh, it, it's in my top five. It just and I don't. This sounds like I download the rest of the album. The first thirty seconds of this album is probably my favourite opening thirty seconds of any album ever. It's yeah, I think so fucking great.
1: That the, it's the reverse. It's, it's a harmony guitar, but they play it backwards. And it, and it leads into that, that intro. Uh, and yeah, I, you're right. I, I, I agree. I love that first opening 30 seconds. Lars Ulrich's snare has never sounded <laughs> better. Oh, oh, man. So that, great. And that 30 seconds. And, if, and, and, I, and I've said this to you before. I, 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 when we watched it, it's a reminder. If you ever want to listen to a great <laughs> snare sound, oh put the Seattle... Put on the Seattle show off this tour, and they play Blackened, and Lazaric Snare comes in like a fucking
0: freight train. It is extraordinary. I remember this. It's like he's hitting a gong with an axe. Oh my god, mate! I remember this like it was literally yesterday. I was sitting (coughs) round yours. It was like one o'clock in the morning. You brought (laughs) you brought me out some chicken wings. And you 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 played this Metallica Seattle show, and as you press play, like it gives you like a snippet, like a couple of snippets from the gig, and one of the snippets is James coming in, blackened in the air, and I yeah. was like, and I, I look straight at you and was like, that sounds fucking amazing, and you look at me and went, you just wait until <laughs> you are watching the full thing, oh mate, that Seattle show is monumentally brilliant amazing yeah. and this album is so fantastic oh so brilliant
1: completely completely agree i also love from that show and and this the to live is to die harmony guitar going into master of puppets yeah
0: oh, yeah. That, that's, that's my favourite.
1: Down. yeah. that's my favorite like metallica segment i think of any live show they've ever done because i think that is just magical if you get me a time machine and say i have to go to one gig i'm going to that show
0: I understand that completely. I'm fucking hell, what an album.
1: Yeah, yes indeed. So yeah, that's the eighteenth greatest metal album of all time. It could be it could be twelfth. It could you know what I mean? It could be tenth. Yeah. Um but it, it is it is still one of the most astonishing uh, collections of, of 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 metal. We haven't really talked actually about the album but like <laughs> the actual music, but some of the riffs on here, some of the, the musical writing on like Harvester of Sorrow and, and Justice for All and Blackened and and one which is just so transcendentally brilliant. Yeah, I <laughs> it's mean... An astonishing song.
0: We haven't spoke a lot about, obviously, the actual innards of the music, but by 2020, I'm assuming if you're listening to a small, independent music podcast, I'm <laughs> assuming you've listened to Justice <laughs> for All, and I'm assuming you, you'd be able to know what we're referring to. But the, the, that's the thing about this album. it's It transcends us just talking about instrumentation, doesn't it? And yes. that, that, that's the thing about most of these albums in the top twenty. A lot of the albums that we spoke about that were like in the top fifty, we can you know we can break apart like the the musical aspects. But the, these albums are more than that. It, it, it's more than oh it sounds great. Oh they play their instruments great. It, th- this is like metal music that literally changed the game. So it's it's more than us just picking apart segments of great instrumentation. What a fucking album this is. like we, we could definitely have dedicated the whole episode to this um to this album. I think we nearly have, haven't we? <laughs> to be fair mate, we've been going for nearly fifty minutes. So we nearly have Um so actually speaking like it is probably wise that we move that we move on because i've got a one hour interview to add into this show as well um
1: we need to release a side podcast like a side project to this like metallica after dark yeah so me and you just like talking about riffs for like be, six hours
0: it'd be endless we'd have, like, we'd have like one listener that'd be me that'd be me listening back to make sure it sounds all right on youtube yeah me too New record from the Used, which is a complete change of direction here. Um,
1: Indeed,
0: album is called Heartwork, and it's out this Friday, the twenty fourth of April. Sam, uh, I'm going to start this off uh, just by mentioning. I-, I do feel a bit bad for the Used I- in is the sense. Well, they're one of those bands that, but because they're just, they're so tied to the emo aesthetic, which I'm pretty sure you know what I'm referring to there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What that means for them now is that they're constantly referred to in the past tense.
1: It does help that they haven't changed their name to The use.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what I mean is, if you see The Used mentioned generally now, it's in, like, some meme where someone's laughing about the fact that they used to be Ema. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, they released
1: the taste of ink, didn't they? The use, which is like... Yeah.
0: Emo Nirvana, like now bands like Panic at the Disco, Fall Out Boy, and My Chemical Romance that they managed to survive that because they were the absolute peak of the genre. They were they were the biggest names in the game. Fall Out Boy no weren't emo rock, but they, they still managed to fall into that category because they had Pete Wentz, the, the, yeah. the, the, the long slick emo hair. You know yeah. what I'm getting at? Yeah, there's um, a lot but- of
1: fringes in that band.
0: A lot of fringe in the band, but the likes of The Used and uh, Senses Fail and Taking Back Sunday... Uh, Taking Back Sunday
1: are a big one for the emos.
0: They struggle to gain the same level of traction now as they had in the mid-2000s, because Emo Rock isn't the big deal anymore, but Taking Back Sunday, The Used and Senses Fail, they were so tied to it, but they weren't the biggest names in the game.
1: They didn't transcend it, this is the the, thing. Yeah,
0: that's... but
1: they didn't sorry go on no 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 i was was only gonna add a small thing so sorry to to take you away from that but it's 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 bands that don't go beyond it isn't it and they end up just being associated with that genre over and we get it with thrash metal and slayer and 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 we just talked about metallica head i went beyond their own genre and it's the same thing isn't it if you just stay within that genre and that style then you'll forever be associated with it
0: Exactly that, and I've got some proof um, for you here, because I, I, I decided to go in and look it up. Uh, the second record, In Love and Death, came out in 2004, and was it came number six on the Billboard 200, uh, the, last al- the last album which I doubt that you would be able to remember the name of.
1: The last album before this? <laughs>
0: yeah, like, no... I'm not expecting to know the name of the album because it's kind yeah, of proving I'm, I'm, my point. I am blanking here, mate. Yeah, yeah, it was called The Canyon. Uh, that came 50th on the Billboard 200. Now, you might say to me, well, Chris, um, record sales have a, a mean much less in this day and age. So that's not really a fair barometer. We're and assuming I'll...
1: that I'd naturally defend the use. This is <laughs> And
0: To which I'd say, you are absolutely correct. Um, so here's the statistic. <laughs> This is how much I cared to look into this. Um, <laughs> their, their highest played song on Spotify is the song that you referenced, The Taste of Ink, which is on their debut record. He's a banger. Oh, my God, absolutely. Um, 56 million streams on that song. Absolutely huge and massive. The highest stream song from their last album is called For You, and that did 700,000 streams. Do you see the point I'm making here?
1: That is quite a drop-off. A like, Canyon-level drop-off, one might say. <laughs> that was cheap. Um, yeah,
0: sorry. So, so what I'm getting at here is that the used, they aren't like, they're not like a terrible band. Like, and their albums haven't. <laughs> the Canyon's not a particularly brilliant piece of work. However, what it is, <laughs> but what it is. It, it's just, it's just an, it's just an emo rock band still like living out their years. But because they are, they were so tied in to emo rock. What happened was. When the fans of Emo Rock grew out of it, and Emo Rock kind of died a death when My Chemical Romance dissipated and Panic at a Disco moved on to different things, for their Boy, etc., those fans completely left, and The Used hadn't gone anywhere else apart from being an Emo Rock band. So what they're left with is the absolutely massive hardcore The Used fans. And they had no middle of the roads fan middle of the road fans left. And can I just point out that the used are still a very, very solid band. They're by no means struggling now. It's not like the used are on the brink of disaster. They're still a very, very solid band. And if they toured the UK, that I think they were gonna be on a tour with uh SUM forty one. I feel like that got announced or was about to be announced, so some for some reason that's in the back of my mind. And that was gonna be like academy size shows, and I've got no doubt they'd pull in big crowds for that, but my point is, is that a problem for the used is that they're so tied to something that's just not big anymore, and I, 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 I am, I'm quite certain of this. If My Chemical Romance did another album, I think that within six months, all people would do is make memes about the Black Parade again. I think My Chemical Romance would do like another album, and if it was another attempt to emo emo rock and not to do anything else, it would just be something that people listen to and be like, "Oh, it's not very good, is it? It's not as good as the Black Parade." So we'll make memes about that again. How, how funny it was that I was emo back then. I think that's exactly what would happen. Um, I'd, I'd like yeah. to wager a bit on that, especially considering the last My Chemical Romance album is fucking abysmal. It's really that, bad.
1: It's really, really, it's really, really, really terrible, and it is also really hard to do that type of rock music well
0: yeah um it if you look at this album's quite like an example for that to be fair
1: <laughs> <laughs> no comments. and if you look at like black the black parade it's brimming with not just the great songs it's brimming with energy uh, pop punk and emo rock can't sound tired um you just can't um it just doesn't work that way you need you need like a frenzied energy and the thing about my chemical romance is they always had in their, their peak years it was fast-paced it was energetic it was frenetic there was an element of like humor people forget this about my chem they were they're really smart um like a really humorous tongue-in-cheek um element to some of their lyrics and their ideas and, and when that went away and the joke sort of fell a bit flat then people were like oh the, the music's really simplistic and dull well without the spark that the previous albums had then it it is um and i think this album uh the used here is examples of some of the it's a compilation album i think this feels like um actually i'll, I'll throw it to you because you're a you're a you're a much more forgiving listener with this sort of music than i am and i'm I, 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 I don't want to tear this apart. I, I, don't, I don't think, I don't think it's, it's worthy of that. Do you like this? Do you enjoy this?
0: It's all right, isn't it? Um,
1: yeah,
0: I, the, I, I feel similar. The opening track's great. Yeah. I, I really I, like the opening track, especially that chorus. Fucking huge. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the,
1: uh, this is like a compilation in the sense that there are moments of this where it's like, oh, that's why they used a really big and it's like oh that's why their vocalist is superb and some of these choruses are great and, yes. and some of these lyrics are really poignant and then i, li- then I listen to some other songs and i'm like
0: <laughs> there's oh, a few of them there's why a few is of, there's a few
1: of them on this there's, mate. There's, there's enough trash songs on this where i'm like if this was an ep this would be brilliant um because there's like six songs where i'm like if i never heard that again oh i, 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 I forgot i forgot i forget the chorus Halfway through hearing the chorus on some of these, um, there's like a middle section of here before oh they like
0: I was the before they get same to the last
1: thing. before they get to the last bits where they're like, oh shit, we need some celebrities to make this <laughs> <Yeah>. album <laughs> listenable. <laughs> the bit from my cocoon um, to like clean cut heels, Awful. I I've listened to it twice today <laughs> and I can't remember a lot about it. Oh, and I'm mate. actually doing a podcast to review it for you. Bloody nose is horrendous.
0: Also, uh, wow, I hate this song is atrocious.
1: Yeah, uh, and really uh, there's uh, I forget the name of the song because I'm actually looking at the track. I just can't remember which one's which, which is not a ringing endorsement um, for the album itself, where it is some spoken word stuff and I spun around in my chair like a Bond villain. <laughs> eyebrow (laughs) off like dr evil
0: like who's doing what song's
1: doing this to me yeah because there was like a collection of like words that looked like the lead singer's just gone to the dictionary and he just said something like transmordification or something like that or post-mortem something i'm like
0: i I think (laughs) it's called i think it's called cathedral bell i think that's the one or, um, or not, it's either Cathedral Bell or nineteen eighty four I think.
1: Yeah, it's one of those two in that middle section.
0: And it's like, that
1: doesn't even mean anything. Those words don't have any meaning at all. Yeah, um, it's bad, this. And it's, it's bad, it's bad at times. And then I'll, I'll listen to the song um, Obvious Blase. Why would you get Travis Barker to play drums on a song that doesn't allow Travis Barker to play drums on the song properly? Like he's picked a song that's like, oh yeah, we're gonna have Travis Barker. Oh, is it gonna be like one of the heavier songs or one of the up, like upmarket punk ones that are there? To... No, we're gonna just play like four four, and we're gonna ask him to play like a basic downbeat. Why? Why is he here for that? Um, it also, before I pass this back to you, it also sounds like a band that couldn't decide what it wants to be, and this is different to. We're gonna talk about Enter Shikari later, and. That's a band that, that can do lots of things really well and want to do all of them at once. And I've got no problem with that. The used sound like oh, we want to be an email band because that's what works. We also want to be something else. We also want to be a bit heavier. And we also want to try and prove that we're really smart and, and deep and have and, and, and got songs of depth. And it feels like they're caught in a concert track where they're trying to do all of these at once. Like the song with Caleb Shelmo, it's got a breakdown at the end, and I was like, legitimately tapped, nodding along, tap my head. But now I'm thinking, am I just nodding along because it's got a heavy riff and it sounds like Beartooth? Am I am I I'm not enjoying this because of the used element to it? And then to feel something at the end is a decent song, and I'm like, all right, okay, I will get it. But there's there's too much of this where it's wasted airtime. There's too much of this where it's it's pointless. This is this is this album's too long.
0: Oh my god, yes. This it's about way it's too about, long
1: it's about four songs too long that's the thing it's a, if if you was if this was seven seven or eight songs i know it would be only be half an hour or something like that but if it was seven or eight songs and i don't know you put like a live track as like an extra downloadable song or something like that or a dvd or something you know something to justify people buying it it's fair in spotify doesn't really matter either way does it but that that's the point it would be i think it'd be much more successful um, in much more concise because this is, this is a bit bloated, and there are just points of this where it's so forgettable and mediocre. But there are also points of this where I'm listening to it and thinking, oh, I get it. Like, And the used aren't for me, and they're not probably not for you either. And there's a great scourge of this thinking, people thinking this probably, oh, I really like the used, so I, I'll probably listen to this and really enjoy it because it sounds like everything. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine. Uh, if you like the use, you like Take it Back Sunday, you like Follett Boy, you might really enjoy this but I'm telling you that 40% of this album is trash.
0: There's a lot of bad on this album. Like, it's made me laugh. I expected it, but it still made me giggle hearing you say, the middle of this album oh, is it's so fucking poor. terrible. <laughs> it's really bad. Uh, and un- until uh, Mark Hoppers comes in on a lighthouse, um, yeah. I was flagging. The first two songs is Paradise Lost, the one I already mentioned.
1: And yeah, then you got,
0: yeah. b- that Blow Me with Jason Allen Butler. <laughs>
1: Jason,
0: yeah, really good, really sorry. J- Jason is Jason on that song. Yeah. Jason yeah. owns that shit, man. He's so brilliant. Um, But then the middle of this album, it this does suffer the Feldman effect. Now, John Feldman uh, produced this album, who is like a famed pop punk producer, but he's also kind of famed for, like, <laughs> removing every kind of songwriting instinct from a band other than if you strip it down to, like, focusing towards the lowest common denominator, people might buy it. Um, oh. and, and, you man, you can get, you can see that. That stands out like it's fucking glossed in luminous paint on this album. Wow, yeah. I hate this song. Oh, my goodness. How, how people have sat there and thought, yeah, we'll put this on there. How old are the members of the used? Because if they're not twenty fucking three there's an embarrassment at times. Well they've been a guy for twenty years so they're certainly not twenty three. If
1: you're in um, your forties releasing songs like Where well, I Hate This Song uh, it's just dreadful.
0: I, I do want to point out that there are some really good tr- there are some really good tracks on this. I really like the opener And Bert McCracken, the vocalist, he has got a good voice. He has. He has. Uh, but, but sometimes it just puts a really wasteful use. not just don't understand it at all. Um, the used are actually still pretty good. It's sitting in between pop rock and email rock, to be fair. They're, they're still a good band when they do that. But outside of that, this album struggles, man. They're just a victim of their past, aren't they? They made their name in Emo and Alternative Rock. That's no longer the hip thing. So they have to go searching for something else and and they get really mixed results. And I suppose, you know, I suppose there's really much else you can say about it that, isn't
1: it? No, I don't, I don't think that there is. I think... I think... I can't even see, like, if you're a used fan, like, you probably might really enjoy it, but I even think if you are a used fan, there's a... I mean, the first time I listened to this pew, I had to listen to it in two installments. Like, I had to pause it, do something else for a bit, and then come back. Because I was just like, I can't stomach this. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just can't do it. Um, it's like climbing a mountain. I had to, like, take a break and fucking camp up, and get myself ready. Um, but, like, even if you're a fan, there's got to be points of this where you listen to it and thinking, oh, man. And there's some... Evidently, there's some real talent here, and I think there should be some room for growth. And there's no there's no reason why they can't try that because, like you said, they're going to play shows and they're going to be successful regardless. And if they try for something else and it doesn't work out, they can go back to playing the used style music. um And I said to you before we reviewed the album, before I listened to the album, you like this, and you read the list of people that are on this album, and I was like. All right, that's either means that it's going to be great or it needs propping up. And this is definitely the fucking latter. This is definitely the latter. This needed it propping is. up. It, it, it's piggybacked. The best part of this album is where somebody else is singing. And it's piggybacking off somebody else's talent. And um, where it's the songs take on the personality of the vocalist. So the bit with J- the song with Jason Butler sounds like an live song. The, the bit with Caleb Shomo sounds like Beartooth. The bit with Mark Hopper sounds a bit like Blink. And that's where they sound really good. And if and that's a problem when none of those band names are on the front of your album. So So that's an issue. But on the flip side, if you're talented enough to be able to do impersonations of these great albums and these great bands and do different styles and stuff and able to produce music that would work for like a, a bear Tooth style or a, a blink style or whatever then why don't you just try using that talent and creating something different because there's clearly parts of this that just don't work for, for 2020 and don't work for a modern audience and in the Spotify generation now, where you don't have to buy a full album and you don't feel obligated to listen to the whole thing, people are going to get three tracks into this and then go back to, to listen to something else. You may as well release something condensed that's four or five tracks that really hits hard. I mean, what, what, what do the users need? To bring out 12 songs? Do you know what I mean? Is there, a, is there a purpose for it? That being said, we're looking at this and we're not in the band. I might have I've sat I've sat in the studio and thought, that sounds great. I us send it out. But... As a, as a listener, there's a lot of there's a lot of fat that just didn't need to be put here. It's not a bad album, but it's it's an okay album with lots of bad on it.
0: I agree. It's not a, it's not a bad piece of music, but it the middle section just to make the point again, man. The middle section is like a tent on weight around the waist of this album.
1: Yeah, floating in, in the so. ocean. Yeah, I completely I completely agree, man. Completely agree.
0: I am making the decision because of the length of time that we've already gone that I am going to put the Walter Delgado interview out as a separate episode. Uh, Because we've already already gone for I think about an hour and ten minutes here and we've got another album to review and I don't want to have to cut any of the Walter interview out. I want people to hear the whole thing. So I'm going to release the Walter... uh, I know that I said at the start that we're going to add the Walter Delgado interview onto this episode. I'm going to release it as a separate episode next week. Because I don't want to have to trim anything out of that interview, mm. but I don't want to do a podcast that's three hours long. Because I just, I just don't think you that could handle that, uh, or would, or would want to handle it in any way, shape, or form. I um, think, I think that like
1: makes sense. We could just add a bit where you say that at the start, mate, and then we can just.
0: Yeah, that's what we'll do. um Moving on to the final segment of the show. A uh, new end Shikari record and uh, nothing is true and everything is possible. It's actually out now. It was released on Friday. Mm. So, coincidentally, we had a podcast coming up straight after. So, I don't suppose the timing could have been any better. When, when I... I speak about this quite often, actually. And I've, I've done it a few times on the podcast. I first saw Shikari. I, I'd been listening to them beforehand. But I first saw Shikari live at Reading. And... and there was an intensity in that crowd... And there was a desire to see them... And there was a size of the crowd... There was a performance put on where I thought... Man, I-, I think Shikari might end up being like... One of the massive, massive like alternative bands in the world... And they, they absolutely have done fantastically for themselves... They're like arena status in the UK... They've played Alexandra Palace twice... But... It didn't get that far for them... And I remember... Um, my favourite album that they did was uh, Flash for of Colour, and the next album they did after that was the Mind Sweep. And the Mind Sweep that when that was released, kind of coincided with when I first started writing, uh, doing reviews. And I remember I got sent the Mind Sweep with for like one of the first sites that I ever wrote for, and they selected me to review it. And I think every single reviewer has done this. Everyone that's like written reviews. When you get sent an album from one of your favourite bands and you're new to reviewing, you're so excited that, oh my God, I'm listening to the Shikari album before 99.9% of the world. I'm so lucky that it kind of clears your judgement and you overscore. And I remember I gave them mine, sweeping 9 out of 10. And looking back now, that album is absolutely not a 9 out of 10. Can you nine now sit
1: there and think of the other albums you've given 9 out of 10 and now you've asserted that Minesweeper is as good as those <laughs> albums?
0: Yeah, it's. It, I, I was just overly excited. And I think it's happened to everyone that's written reviews for music. Yeah, the point, the, the point I'm making here, not to go off on too far of a tangent, is that it kind of feels like some of the steam... Ran out of Shikari. But I think that's more to do with me. The fact that I kind of wanted Shikari to stay. As this like overly aggressive. Like Rage Against the Machine with Techno Beat-esque band. Like they were on Flash Full of Color. And they moved into different areas. Before I was kind of ready for them to. There is still a little bit of that that lives on the mind sweep, But y- you could see that something bigger had something bigger was at play and then they released the spark and when i first listened to the spark i just didn't like it it was simple as that like I, I just i just didn't think it was a good album um there was i liked the title track and i liked live outside and there was a couple of decent songs on there but there was there was again a song like um time country back which i just which i just didn't like at all so i felt like the kind of intensity and the momentum for Shikari was starting to dissipate and then I caught them live I got sent to the show for the podcast actually I don't know if you remember me talking about this they were supported by Black Peaks and Palai and I got one over again the crowd Master of mastered the Institute show was sold out fucking great and I listened back to the spark and I enjoyed it a little bit more the point why I said all of that is because I felt like the scene was starting to run out of Shikari but if I said to you not musically Sam but if Ammo was bringing with the horizon, searching for a new platform, and we'd say they found it, how do you feel this new album by Shikari has done in searching for the same thing? Not musically, because they're saying very different albums, but in terms of for looking for a new platform, trying to land on it.
1: I think it absolutely confirms that they're looking with with uh, present tense being, or future tense being the, the, the appropriate one there. Because it doesn't sound like they're settling or settled a tour on a consistent musical style.
0: There rarely I... have been, though. I think, I, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. I don't think any Shikari album sounds the, the same from song one to song ten. No, I think that's fair to say as, as well. I think what he does confirm
1: is that, and I, I agree with you, actually. I think you made a, an astute point earlier when you said that um, the band changed, but in a different way to the way that you wanted them to. And that coloured your perspective on them. And I think that happens a lot um, with when you're a fan of a certain band, you want them to take a certain direction. And you have a, almost like, it's hard to define, but there's, there's almost like a, a conscious sound you have in your head about how you, like, oh, so I just did more of that and a bit more of that and added this bit in. And so you start to, like, almost be the band's manager in your own in your own head. And when they take a different direction to that, it's like you're already, like, internally, like, offended, almost, that they didn't yeah. go along with your version of things that you haven't discussed with them. And I think that's natural, though, because that's, like, your own internal narrative happening with a group. And when you give a fuck about a band, that's exactly what happens, and that's what happens here. And I, I agree. I wanted Chikara to stay hard and stay like mothership i wanted them to just do that 10 times an album for the next 20 years um but they wanted to go in a different direction and fair enough it's their band i mean they didn't ask me but it's their band um but and that that's where that's where that's where we are now and i think this album i I went into this and listened to the first couple of songs and i was like not sure about this for me Uh, i thought not sure this is for me um and then the more I listened to it and the further down the album I went, I started to change my opinion from this is a strange album by a, a strange band to this is Enter Shikari proving once again that you can't put them in a genre, you can't put them in a box, they'll do exactly what they like. And Rue Reynolds is, you can make an argument either, and you can find evidence that either A, Rue Reynolds is one of the bravest songwriters we've had in the last 25 years.
0: Oh, I, I, personally, I think he's,
1: but you could also, you can also make an argument that he's like a genius, like, like a proper, like maverick. And yeah. you can look for, and you can look for points of this. And I don't think all of it works. Um, I, I this, this sort of, this album feels like a mad scientist, like sort of like doing just different experiments and just sort of trying things here and there. And there are points where this doesn't, just doesn't translate for me like i think like modern living is a bit tedious and that apocalyptic so i think there's too many times when they they spend this album trying to make like an ironic tongue-in-cheek comment about society and it goes like three minutes too long and it's like i'm listening to it thinking all right i get it we're all dickheads but is there an actual song here or are you just gonna like point out how stupid we all are for another 10 minutes and that that's what it feels like but there are points on this where i'm like oh this is this is like stunning um T I N A and Elegy for Education. Um The Pressure's On and arguably Satellites and the King as well are brilliant songs and I can't I can't really put a couple of them in, 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 in boxes. There are a few songs on here that are just stunning. I think Elegy for, Educa- uh, Elegy for Extinction, I was listening to this appropriately queuing in the Sainsbury's and <laughs> it was just in like a massive square and we're all two metres apart and it's like we're all wearing masks and there's like security guards all over the place and I'm listening to this and it's after, um, it, it's, it's a couple of songs or either before or after he's about to talk about how different everything is and how, you know, everything's true and nothing is possible and everything's possible and nothing's true. <gasps> A bit of lies and stuff like that and it was quite poignant for me to listen to that that moment of that song because it's beautiful it's a beautiful genuinely beautiful piece of music and i was like "Ed Sheeran probably do an orchestra now. and then when you add that with tina which is like a club song um you could argue that it's like sounds like a grime soundtrack or like drum and bass and then and then adding into um the pressure's on which is just a brilliant song um walking off the Walking Off the Face of The if is alright, but Crossing the Rubik is pretty good and so is the so so is the Great unknown in the Dreamers Hotel. Decent songs, but there are real moments of musical clarity and real real creativity and real moments of like genius here, I think. Or at least real moments of like clairvoyance from a songwriting perspective. I don't think it all works for me as a listener. I think some of it feels like he's trying too hard. To be a political commentator. And he's forgetting that there needs to be a song. In there as well. But overall. I think this is a confirmation. Like 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 we were talking about earlier. That. that bring me the, right, uh, bring me the right, Enter Shikari are. Expanding. Will continue to expand. Will not be tied down to anything. There is no Enter Shikari blueprint. And they will continually surprise you. And Rue Reynolds. Is, is one of the most creative interesting and compelling and fascinating songwriters of our generation and it doesn't really matter if some of it doesn't work i'm glad that he's doing stuff like this does that make sense like i'm glad that he's trying and i'm glad that he's just doing what he wants and i'm glad that they're just as creative as they are like i said it doesn't all work but it doesn't have to because the bits where it does work i think that i think are tremendous there's real moments of greatness in this album
0: I think I would echo a lot of your sentiments there. And listening to Aunt Shikari now is... As you've said, it's very difficult to, to put them in a box. And obviously that is the intention for them. I do remember reading a comment before that someone had said that... And this is like, I'm talking about like five, six, six years ago now. So I'm talking about the flash flood of colour era where we, the person said the end, are basically shouting at the government and then the noise of 111 <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> which which to be fair I mean it's kind of hard to argue but I mean that was the Shikari era that I personally enjoyed listening to the most. but you know what Sam I will absolutely take this as a second I think this is the best record they've wrote since a flash flood of color and you are right not everything hits here and there are some decisions which are made that i think are perfectly nice but i don't think they actually make the record better you referring to the live orchestra then on LEG for extinction and it's certainly like gorgeous sounding but it comes in between tina and marionettes
1: yeah it's a weird place yeah
0: it's not like it links the two together (laughs) <laughs> it's a really, no. it's just like randomly just dropped in there out of nowhere and like the, the band travelled to Prague, I think, to record it with a live orchestra and that's amazing, like I love that, I love that bravery. was not it open the album? I was thinking that and I love that bravery, that ingenuity to just go to Prague and get this live orchestra in. I'm not sure having it actually makes the album better. And there's a song on it called Apocaholics Anonymous. It it follows (laughs) after Modern Living. And if it's not their walk-on song live, then I don't know why this is on the album. Because it's got that um, I'd like to welcome all my people here lyric. Um, And then it kind of like fades out. And I think that would be a a perfectly good walk-on track for them. Live. But if it's not, then I don't know why that's on the album. Because if it's not, it's a shit song. If, this, if, it's, if that song is not solely put there so that people already, so that people are familiar with the song they're walking on to, I don't know why it's here because it's not a good song. Um, I think Tina's the best song on the album. I absolutely yeah, love that. I love that chorus. And that's going to go off live. And it's got... What Shikari have always been brilliant at. I don't think there's a better band that can write, like, a rave rock chorus like Shikari. They are brilliant at it. And Rue, or Ray Reynolds, however you want to pronounce it, he's, he's a really, really good vocalist. Uh, and he's, he's a tremendous frontman as well. If you've ever seen Shikari live, I'm sure you'd be able to attest to that. Uh, you Actually, you did see them. You were with me, uh, yes. Sam Dunk, when the headline. Yeah, they were terrific. Um, and I think this album accentuates a lot of what he can do brilliantly. But I think it also highlights areas where they're almost too intelligent for their own good. Like, there's... (laughs) On Walting Off the Face of the Earth 1, there's, like, they add this, like, really, like, interesting mix of, like, orchestra into that song. It's, like, woven in. But again, I'm not sure how it actually benefits anything. I, I don't know whether it actually makes the record progress better it musically. What I would what I would say, uh, Crossing the Rubicon is like a straight-up pop song, massive chorus. Mm. But it's a bit of a left-up from now because it follows uh, The Great Unknown. So it's like The Great Unknown is like your classic, like, Shikari opener, that techno rave rock bass. And then out of absolutely nowhere, you've got this straight-up pop song. Like, you could give that to a boy band. Crossing the Rubicon. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And, but, but that doesn't take anything away from it being like a really good track. And I think it opens up where the record might go. Because if you listen to The Great Unknown and then turn the record off, you'd think, oh, they've just done a standard Chicari album. But then when you, when you let track two play, Crossing the Rubicon, you're like, oh, shit, where's this going to go then? Because it's just completely opened this album up. I like Modern Living. Uh, you said, I know you said you weren't massive on it, but I like that um, that chorus line, we're apocoholics drinking chin and tonics. Uh, I, I think that's quite funny, like <laughs> the concept of people just sitting around waiting for the world to end. I think that's quite a, a cool play on words. Mm. Satellite, I think Satellite is great. Rue, 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 however you want to pronounce it again, sounds fantastic on it. I, I personally, as I mentioned, I love the Snape, it, Gandhi, mate, Gandhi era of Shikari that's my personal favourite but it would be absolutely absurdly hypocritical for me to sit here and be like they moved on from rave rock breakdowns on Fumi after the things that I've said about people refusing to move on with bands so you know what mate if there's if a flash flood of colour is the last time you'll hear Shikari really going at it, this really like these dirty bass lines with breakdowns and rare sounding like he wants to murder someone. This is I'll take this as a close second. I think this is a really good solid record, much better than the Spark, fairly better than the Mind Sweep. I, st- I I wouldn't say this is like phenomenal, and I wouldn't say this like opens up a whole new checkpoint and then shikari's career but really good solid album i really like this
1: yeah i, I agree it's a good album and in spots it's great would
0: you would you have taken like if i have said to you five months ago the new shikari album's gonna sound like this i feel like we'd have both taken it wouldn't we we'd have been like yeah great then give give us that let's not yeah, take uh, it let's not push it any further
1: absolutely the thing with shikari though is 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 from my perspective as a listener, they've got carte blanche with me to do whatever they want um, because they've they've done this for... It's like Linkin Park. Like, at at some point out of that 15 years, you just have to accept that Linkin Park were going to do what they wanted to do, not what everybody else wanted them to do. And it's the same thing here. Enter Shikari. are going to do Enter Shikari stuff forever. And sometimes it's brilliant and sometimes you like it and sometimes you don't. It's weird and that's fine. I'd rather that than a band that we reviewed earlier, like, trying to cling on to what they used to be. Enter Shikari just writing what they want to do all the time. And sometimes at spots, it's brilliant. So, yeah, I'd take that. I'd take an album of flashes of brilliance and flashes of ridiculousness over straight, bland, mediocre.
0: At the very, very least, praise Shikari's bravery. Because 100%. 100%. we need bands like this that will try and do something different. Try and take alternative music into new areas. It doesn't. This doesn't always hit. When it does, it's brilliant. But it hits enough times for this to be an album that I would genuinely recommend to someone. This is really good, man.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to say.
0: Hope you're still out there, listening man. We've kept you for a while on this one. It's a good job. I didn't add that interview on because uh, we've gone for nearly an hour and a half here, just me and you chatting. Uh, that does bring episode 34 of the Noise Podcast to an end. On the next episode. Not only are me and Sam going to be reviewing the new Trivium album, which is also out this Friday. Man, this Friday is a tremendous day for releases. Um, nice. Not only are we going to be reviewing the new uh, Trivium album, we're going to be adding on Sam's interview with Alex Taylor from Malevolence into the show as well. So um, where we're going to do it next week. I'm going to release my interview with Walter Delgado as a soul podcast, just on its own, because we went for nearly an hour and... There was no way I wanted to make you guys sit through two and a half hours of a podcast. And then the week after that, it will be the standard episode, us reviewing Trivium, and I'll find another record that's coming out in and around the time for us to talk about, as well as Sam's interview with Alex Taylor from Malevolence. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, man. Of course, we've loved your company, and we appreciate every listen it means a lot to us. Uh, Be sure to like and subscribe to us on YouTube. If you could leave a rating on Apple Music, that would be wicked. We're going to be back next week and the week after as well. We love you very much. Thank you for listening. Bye.